morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Jonathan. In case you uh, don't know me or haven't met me, I'm one of the members here. Tim's uh, gone out on vacation with his family, uh, getting some really good special time. And so I'm getting the, the joy and pleasure to spend some time in the Word with you. Let me pray just before we start. Father, I love the songs that, that we've been singing today, just how much we need you and how dependent we are upon you. God, and I, I do just acknowledge right now my dependence upon you. And Lord, I know that the, it doesn't matter what I say here, uh, if you don't show up, if you don't, by your spirit, awaken hearts, move people towards these words, Lord, I pray that, that you would take them, multiply them like breadcrumbs, that we would feed on your word, that we would come to Jesus and find what we're looking for. Lord, teach us, help us to walk as faithful disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you guys ever wanted to uh, learn something that you didn't know how to do? Almost some, maybe something that like, seemed almost impossible. Well, for my family, uh, we went on vacation about once a, once a year. Um, it would, I have uh, four siblings, and we would travel down. I'm from Kansas City. We would travel down to um, Missouri or Arkansas, and we would go to a lake. And one of our favorite things to do would be we'd go to the local marina, and we would rent a boat. And we would have the boat for the week, and uh, we would water ski. That was one of the main things we did. Didn't fish as much. Did a little bit of that, but mostly we water skied. So my brother, his name's Topher, he's about 10 years older than me, was uh, the guy that I idolized the most. I, I would emulate him in whatever way I could when I was a kid. Um, he, would, he was like my hero. And one of the things that he had learned to do in our vacation time is he learned to slalom ski. Now, if you're not familiar with skiing, I mean, normally water skiing, you've got, you know, two skis, and you're holding on a rope behind a boat. Well, slalom skiing, you're on one ski. you got one foot in front of the other like this, okay, and you kind of hold the rope a little bit different. So he had learned to do that, and I remember sitting in the boat, watching him zigzag back and forth across the wake, just flying back and forth. He would shoot up this big, like, you know, rooster tail off, off of his ski, and I was always like, man, I want to do that. One of the other things that my brother was good at was teaching. And so when he was in the boat, and so, you know, sometimes like maybe my sister would go out and get on skis, and, and he would sit next to me, and he would talk about the things that my sister was doing. And so he'd say, you see how she's holding her, her arms out straight? Make sure if you ever ski, you, you got to hold those arms out straight. If you hold them up too close, that's too hard. Or, you know, when you, when you ski, you got to kind of bend your knees, almost like you're sitting in a chair. So he would talk to me about these things. So I was learning how to ski even before I ever put my foot in a boot. And then one day he said, do you want to go out there with me? And so I don't remember how old I was. I mean, I, I was pretty young. I mean, at six, seven, I don't know. I was pretty young. And I, you know, of course, I mean, my hero has just asked me to go out into the water with him and ski with him. I didn't exactly probably know what that would look like. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And so, you know, we get out there, jump in the water, and I didn't have any skis. I just went out kind of on my bare feet. And we got in the water, and I put my, my feet on his skis, and just in front of me. And, you know, he hung onto the rope. Really, all, He was really mostly just carrying me 
and skiing. That's really what he was doing. And uh, so we did that, and it was awesome. I loved it. I felt like I was skiing. I was, you know, I was going with him. I mean, obviously, he was doing all the work. And they were like, hey, let's, he, he like said, hey, you should like get on my shoulders. I'm like, okay. And so this was like after several times. And so I start going from, from putting my feet on his skis to like climbing him so that now I'm on his shoulders. And so we're skiing. We've got some really good pictures of this. Um, I don't really know where they are. They're probably at my dad's house somewhere. I tried to find them. And so we're starting to do these tricks, right? And as time went on, he's like, okay, now it's time for you to put your feet in your own skis. And so we got little skis, you know, not, not you know, half the size, basically. And so he straddled, his, straddled me, and, he, and I had uh, my little skis in between his big skis, and we were both hanging onto the rope, and we would get up together. And all of a sudden, we're like, I'm learning to ski, I'm learning to keep my balance. And I feel like I'm really starting to learn to ski. And the next thing he says, okay, this time, I'm not going to ski. You're going to do it by yourself. But I'm going to get in the water. I'm going to help you get your skis on. So that was the next thing. So we got in the water. We're out, you know, 60 feet from the boat, behind the boat with the rope or whatever. And he's, like, helping me get my skis on by myself. And, and he's just sitting there in the water. And then we tell the boat to go. And I'm, I go. And I'm skiing. And there's my brother back there, you know. And he's cheering me on or whatever. So this, this process goes on, and, you know, we continue to ski. I get older. I learn to slalom just a few years later, and, you know, I, I start to grow and get to my adult size, and we start competing. We both are slaloming now. We're going back and forth. We figure out how to build a slalom course, and so, like, we go, we take these buoys. This is like, we do this for one week in a year, and we're, like, finding ways to do all these things skiing. We'll go, we'll set up this psalm course, and we're going back and forth, and skis, and we're, we're competing. Well, eventually, I pass my brother, and um, now I'm skiing better than he is, and I'm younger than him. And so, obviously, there's, you know, he loves me. He's proud of me. It's great. You know, and I end up going to college and skiing more in college and things like that. So, a couple years ago, I entered into a new phase of my skiing life. I entered into the phase of teaching my kids how to ski. And it's amazing how, like, you go from, like, I remember all those things that I did with my brother, and then when I start teaching my own kids, I'm doing the same thing. We're, they're, you know, like, they're riding on my skis, and I'm literally just carrying them. I didn't know that how hard that was to actually just, like, carry, like, they don't even, they're, you know, I, I, for some reason, I remember my feet being on his skis, but, like, I don't think, like, when I did this with Isaiah, I'm not sure his feet really touched the skis. He was just kind of resting on my arms like this. And so I say all this. Um, you know, it's, it's funny how we all follow the same pattern. There's, you know, there's a lot of emotions um, associated with this process. You know, there's longing. They're seeing, hey, that's something I want to do. I, and, and you identify, hey, he knows how to do that. So there's, there's this longing, there's a level of excitement, like an adventure, like, hey, I'm going to learn this, this is, you know, I'm excited. And there's a, a, like a camaraderie, a relationship that says, hey, I'm doing this with my brother, my hero, we're going into, and doing this together. You know, I think we all experience that sometimes. We experience that longing, we see something out there, it's like, man, I'd really like to do that, but I don't know how I'm going to do that. That seems way too hard for me. You know, but often... Uh, because that, that feels so far out of reach, we don't, we don't know what to do. You know, I didn't, I didn't know how to water ski 
But what made all the difference is that I knew someone who did. And that someone not only knew how to do it, but seemed excited to help me learn how to do it. And I think this longing that we all have, that we experience in different ways, I think we experience in our relationship to God with some regularity. You know, we, we see things in our lives, we're like, this just doesn't fit. This isn't, I know that this isn't supposed to be part of my Christian walk. I know this isn't some, a, a, a way that I need to go. I think that guy might know how to get there. I think the STEPS program is a great, a great example of that. Where you're stepping in, you're saying, hey, I'm, I want my relationship to grow. You see, what happens when you become a Christian, there is something radical that happens inside your heart. It's like your spiritual taste buds have changed. God does this. It's a miraculous thing. There's a theological term for it. It's called regeneration or new birth. It's where God wakes up your heart and you start to crave new things. But that doesn't always necessarily mean that you know the right path to go. We feel that longing, but we don't know the steps to take. And God cares about that. God cares about us. And that's why he's set up the things that he set up. The first thing that we have is we have scripture. So that all scripture, this is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God gives us his word. So we can live into that word, so that that we can use it to teach and shape and train us. It's our guidebook, our manual. And I love that passage. It's such a good one. If you want to memorize a passage, that's a really good one to memorize. But one of the things that's interesting about that is that that passage was written to a guy named Timothy. And Timothy was um, a guy who's kind of filling a pastoral role in a church. And Paul, the author He says this in the context of saying, Timothy, don't forget what you've learned from the scriptures, how you've learned it from your grandma and from your mom. Don't forget that stuff. And I want you to use it in the church. In other words, I want you to use it specifically in in the context of something we call discipleship. It's a relationship. It's something that you're, you're sharing with somebody, you're walking with them, you're using scripture to help them learn, shape, grow as they follow Jesus. So my, my purpose this morning, my main purpose is for us to understand uh, kind of what discipleship is. And because I believe that God is calling us into a deeper level of discipleship together. But in order to do that, I, um, I think that the best place to start is to start in Matthew 28. So that discipleship is a, is a term, it basically means to be a learner or a follower. And so, but Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is kind of the, the first big setup for what we um, see as discipleship. Now, at this point in time, so the, the passage, we're going to put it up here, but I want to say real, just real quick, kind of the context of this passage. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples. Now, Jesus, the disciples had spent three years with his disciples at this point. They had been learning from him, following him around. They they saw him heal. They saw him care for the poor. They saw him teach. They saw him confront false teachers. All these, he was um, doing amazing things and they were watching this. And then this terrible thing happened as they watched Jesus 
get arrested, imprisoned, and then killed. And this was crushing to the disciples. And so they're on this roller coaster ride of we've lost the teacher that we thought was the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And three days later, he is raised again. He comes back to life and shows up. And so in this passage right here, what this is Jesus after his resurrection, and he has one more mission, to, to sit, one more thing to say to his disciples to send them out. This is known as the Great Commission. If you've ever heard anybody say that, that's, this is the passage that they're, they're talking about. So let's look at this verse. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's a lot of things going on in this passage, but I want to point out the main verb, if you could back it up to the, yeah. Um, the main verb in this passage is that word, make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. For us, it's two words, but it's actually in Greek, it's one word. Make disciples. And I'm sure that their understanding of what it meant when Jesus said, hey, you are my disciples. I want you to go and make disciples. They're going to have all kinds of things running back in their mind. Oh, yeah, when Jesus did this and Jesus did that and he taught us this and we saw him do this and then he told us to go do something and we went and did it and it was amazing. And all those things are rolling in the, in the back of their mind as they hear Jesus say, make disciples. This concept disciple, a learning follower, this was a big task given for them to do. And while they are being called to make disciples, they are also disciples. I think this is actually a really important thing to understand. Because these disciples, in many respects, they were like Jesus' sheep. There's even passages where it refers to Jesus seeing them as the flock, the sheep that God has given him to care for. They were his sheep. And so he's... Telling these sheep, hey, I want you to go and lead other sheep. Sheep leading sheep. Disciples leading disciples. Jesus was their good shepherd. He spiritually fed and watered them. He healed, bound up their spiritual wounds. He rescued them. I think at this point, I think of Psalm 23. Where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down beside quiet waters. Or by, by, uh, I, don't get, I gotta, okay, I gotta read it now. I thought I could quote it, but I don't. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There, that's better. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This is how they saw Jesus. 
Jesus was their good shepherd. Psalm 23 would have led them to think about Jesus. It reminds me of a passage that I've been spending um, some time in recently in Ezekiel 34. And you don't need to turn there in your Bibles. We, we won't have it up on the screen here. But I would just want to briefly tell you what God communicates there. So this passage takes place in the, in the, in the um, context of ancient, ancient Israel. And uh, it's a prophecy against uh, its leaders. In it, the leaders are referred to as shepherds. And, and this was just how he talked about them. It, it talks about all the ways, kind of metaphorically, these shepherds of Israel and how they have failed. They were living off all the glory and wealth provided by the flock, but they weren't taking care of them. They weren't providing for their food, and they weren't giving them good, clean water. They didn't bind up the wounded sheep. They didn't strengthen the weak ones. They were selfish leaders, selfish shepherds. What they had forgotten was that this flock was God's flock. God's flock, not theirs to do with as they please. So towards the end of this passage, God declares two things. One, he says that when he looks at these shepherds, he doesn't just see shepherds. He doesn't see shepherds and sheep, leaders, followers, kings, servants. He sees sheep and more sheep. Sheep and more sheep. See, in that moment that God declares that he's against these shepherds, he stands opposed to them. But he sees them as sheep. They're all sheep. The passage ends with an amazing messianic prophecy. A messianic means something that points to the Messiah coming. Something that, so we're, as Christians, we're looking back and we see this and say, oh, he's talking about Jesus there. But this is what it says. It says, and I will set over them one shepherd. So God's solution to these shepherds failing, these leaders failing, is that I'm going to come do it. I'm going to be the shepherd. I'm going to come lead these people. You guys are failing. I'm going to do it. That was God's answer. And then it says here, I'm going to read it straight from the passage. It says, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, this was after um, David was alive. So this is metaphorical. This is talking about somebody in the line of David. This is referring to a promise that there would be a forever king come from the line of David. He's going to establish one shepherd. He will feed them and be that shepherd, a true and good shepherd. Now listen to John 10. This is something Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. This is the image of the good shepherd. This is the good shepherd that was promised in Ezekiel. So what's the point of this? I think my main point is this. Jesus is asking disciples 
to disciple. He's asking sheep to lead sheep. Even the shepherds are also sheep. So because of this, I want to define discipleship in a certain way. Christian discipleship or discipleship in the church is sheep showing other sheep how to follow the good shepherd. I think it's the next slide there. Discipleship in the church is sheep showing other sheep how to follow the good shepherd. I say it this way for two reasons. One, it means that Christian discipleship is not about following anyone other than Jesus. If we are being discipled, but our discipler leads us to a place that is contrary to Jesus, we shouldn't go. Our one true shepherd is Jesus. He is our good shepherd. And second, it also means that there is something real that we are learning from someone else. And it's something really important because it's about us following our good shepherd better. It acknowledges that this sheep person isn't perfect, but that there is legitimately something valuable to gain in that interaction. So now I want to turn to Titus 2, which is kind of where we'll stay for the rest of our time here. And I want to see what God has to say to us. And, and I think we see a really amazing picture. And in the back of our mind, I want that definition of discipleship to be there. Discipleship is sheep showing other sheep how to follow the good shepherd. So we spent a little time in Titus last week. Um, but just so we're on the, page, on the same page, Titus is a book um, written as a letter to a man that Paul has called his true child in the faith. So this is a guy that Paul has spent some significant amount of time with, has really kind of developed him and poured his life into him. I, I get the feeling of almost like my brother was kind of pouring into me about water skiing. I mean, he's poured other things into my life. But Titus is that type of person uh, to Paul, or Paul is that type of person to Titus. Um, they had been doing missionary work together. Um, but Paul had left him to go on to um, somewhere else, and he left Titus in Crete so that he could appoint elders in the new churches that they had founded. So he spent the first part of the letter describing what these elders should look like, um, and then here in chapter 2, he has further instructions to Titus about how he is to be discipling the people in his congregation. So there are five things that uh, I think that I want to pull out, point at, um, that we see in Titus 2. So let's look at that passage together. Titus 2, um, we'll read the first 10 verses here. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good And so train the young women to love the husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame." 
having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior. So the first thing I want to point out is that discipleship is for every believer. And you see that in this passage. If you, um, if you can scroll back, uh, scroll back a couple of slides so that we can see the first few verses, one through five-ish. Yeah. But notice how you see that we have older men. Then we have older women. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. And then you have younger men. You've got husbands. You've got wives. You've got children. You've got bond servants and masters. Everyone is participating in this process of learning how to follow the good shepherd. It's not just for men. It isn't just for the home. It's not just for women. We're all called to be involved in discipleship. The second thing I, I want to point out is that disciple ha discipleship happens in every context. As there is no place that is out of bounds for God. He gets access to everything. When we give our life to him, he gets access even to the most mundane, small things that nobody else knows about. Nobody else is even thinking about except for maybe you. Whether you're working in a field or it's how you treat your spouse, how you interact with your kids, how you work in your job, how you drive from here to Casey's. Those are all things that God has ownership over when we call him Lord. And they're opportunities for the sheep of God's flock to faithfully follow the sound of the good shepherd's voice. And you see that in this passage. He, he deals with all kinds of contexts. I mean, you, you see the, 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 the home, you've got church, you've got you know, bond servants are to be submissive to their masters. That's probably something in a field or, or working. You have lots and lots of contexts that God has right over. And this is where discipleship is happening. When, when, when it says that older women are to teach younger women how to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, that's something that they're doing. They're walking alongside it's not just something they're talking about, but they're walking us alongside them, which leads me to the third thing I want to point out, is that discipleship takes place through modeling and teaching. So in verse 1, it says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So there's teaching. When he's talking about sound doctrine, we're talking about what we see in Scripture. It's where the truth is. In verse 7, it says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching to show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. You know, he said something similar to, to Timothy. He said that he's talking about how Scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the primary tool of the discipler is the Bible. Scripture is the source of all true doctrine. Paul's exhortation to Titus is, is, Titus, don't just make the stuff up. Don't just talk about what feels good or seems right. Don't just talk about local wisdom. Teach, preach the Bible. Teach, preach the gospel of Jesus. 
He says the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He says, preach the word in season and out of season. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just the words that are taught. Modeling matters. You see that in verse 7. It says, be a model of good works. So if you're anything like me, seeing someone demonstrate it oftentimes is better than like hearing them talk about it. That's a lot of times why we look up things on YouTube, like how to fix a washing machine or whatever. It's like, I don't know how to do this. I do not want to read this manual, but I'm going to watch this video. I remember the first time that uh, I saw my older brother discipline his son. This was, a, this was something that was modeled for me. And I, um, I was kind of towards the tail end of my family, so I really didn't see my parents discipline um, my kids much at all, or my, uh, my siblings at all because they were older. I mean, I maybe experienced some myself, except for I was a really good boy. <laughs> Most of the time. Some of the time, anyway. Uh, but I saw my older brother discipline uh, his son. And, the, and it was amazing to watch because I, I remember um, we were on vacation together. We were yeah, on the, one of those vacations where we, were, we, were skiing, where we would go skiing and things like that. We, were, we would all stay in one house. And um, I remember it was one night. We were all sitting around a table and we were playing cards. Like it was my, and at this point, my brother's married and he's got um, one or two kids. I can't remember exactly, but we're sitting around a table playing cards. It's maybe 10 o'clock. We kind of stay up late on vacation. And um, we're st- we, we are playing cards, and we turn around, and there's Cameron, my brother's oldest son, and he's standing there, and he's watching everybody play, and he's like, I don't want to go to bed. Let's go to bed. And um, Topher says, Cameron, you need to go to bed, you know, and is very kind, gentle, but also firm and clear. And uh, Cameron just stands there. He won't go. Well, that continues, and there are, there are a few more times of that happening, and, and um, Cameron, he says, Cameron, if you don't go, there's going to be consequences. Not a tinge of anger, not a tinge of, like, emotional frustration, um, but calm, kindness, but serious with strength, not neglecting uh, any sort of love, and he still refused, and Topher got up, carried him downstairs. He had some kind of discipline. Came back up, and we start playing the game again. Well, guess what happens? About three or four minutes later, here comes Cameron. He's standing there watching us again, and he's just standing there. And Topher turns around, and he's like, Cameron, go back to bed. If you don't go back to bed right now, there's going to be consequences. And I look back at that. So this scenario happened. I think, hmm. It was six or seven times where he would, they'd go down, they would have some sort of discipline moment, and then he would come back up. And every time I watched my brother um, be firm and serious, but, and not just like letting him do whatever he wants, but also at the same time expressing kindness and care and love. And, um, and I think about that every time I think about interacting with my own kids. It was such a great example of modeling for me. I learned from watching. And I think that when, when I read things in the Bible and I, and, I, and I read things about caring for your son and, and not, um, you know, it talks about like it's not, you're not loving your kids if you don't discipline them. If you just let them run roughshod, that is not love. 
in the Proverbs that talks about that. But it also, we're not supposed to be angry. We're not supposed to, we're supposed to have self-control. And so it's just, a, it was a, always such a beautiful balance for me to watch. But he modeled that for me. And so that was an example of someone teaching and modeling. And that's what Paul's asking Titus to do. I want you to model for these, these men and women. I want you to model this, and I want you to teach it. Teach and model. This is what discipleship looks like. Fourth thing. I'll read the next uh, few verses. Discipleship starts with following the good shepherd. So we've got discipleship is for every believer. It happens in every context. It happens through modeling and teaching. It starts with following the good shepherd, and then it ends with something that we'll get to in a second. Starts with following the good shepherd. Let's read these verses. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay, that first verse in, in, or that first word in verse 11, if you could back up. Thanks. Um, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. Okay, that word for, I just want to explain that word. It's actually a really important word in the Bible. I think it's one of the more important words. If you could just narrow it down to like just maybe one word other than like say Jesus, uh, for is kind of a really big important word. That word is a grounding word, okay? It's kind of like saying because. If you can imagine like if you can say Here's the foundation, and here's all the things that we're saying, okay? So, and it, but it works the opposite. So, Paul has said, hey, Titus, I want you to do all these things. Exhort these ways. I want you to model. I want you to, to teach for. And so what he's saying is, I want you to do all these things, and then here's the foundation for that. It's the ground. It's the base. It's the support, okay? For the grace of God has appeared. So why should Titus model and teach these men and women to walk faithfully, to be self-controlled, reverent, disciplined, and love one another? And the answer is because saving grace does that in a person. For the grace of God has appeared. So let me put it another way. Christians who have begun to follow the good shepherd, I said this earlier, they have had their spiritual appetites changed. They crave Jesus. They crave more good. And yet they must learn how to eat. As shepherds or as sheep, we have to learn to eat. We have to learn where the grass is. We have to learn the voice of the shepherd. They crave spiritual food. They need to see it modeled. And so this is something that's happening in them. So the grace of God has awakened. It's in them. And so, Titus, tell them how to do it. How, how, do, we, how do they walk? This is how. This is where you find food. 
This is really a profound thing. And I think if you want to be a good discipler, if you want to be a good trainer of whether it's your family or, or the, the people that you've poured your life into, if you want to be a good discipler for the sake of your church, learn you. Learn to feast on Jesus, on his food. Learn to drink the living water that he provides. Learn to rest in what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. Learn to see Jesus the way Psalm 23 talks about the good shepherd. And having met there, having met Jesus there, the best thing that a sheep can do, another, do for another sheep is to help them feed on that food and drink too. You need to eat and say, hey, sheep, food. Hey, that guy, the shepherd, he knows where good food is. He knows where good water is. And when he says to lay down and rest, you can relax. He's got you. He's going to protect you. Jesus is the good shepherd, and that's what it looks like for us as Sheep to lead other sheep to follow the good shepherd. Last thing, discipleship ends. So it, just, it starts with following the good shepherd. And guys, I want to say, like, if you are here today, and, and maybe you don't feel like you've even started following the good shepherd. You haven't given your life to him and say, God, I think my heart is waking up. I, I want that. Then he's calling you today to come to do that, to give your life to him. So the fifth, discipleship ends with multiplication. So listen to these words uh, from 2 Timothy. It says, you then, my child. So this is Paul talking to Timothy, another one of his guys that he kind of poured his life into. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, you've heard all these things that I've said to you. I want you to entrust that to others. See, discipleship is not intended to end when the person you're discipling uh, is following Jesus. You're not done until they are discipling someone else. That is part of the process. I'm sure a lot of you have played this game. I, I remember doing this in, I don't know, elementary school. Uh, but it's where you have two options. You can have someone who gives you a million dollars to start, or they'll give you a penny on one day. And every day, they'll double that amount. So you've got these two options, right? And they're like, okay, which option do you want? You get it for, you get a penny doubled for 31 days, or you get your million dollars right now. You know, at, at day 15, that million dollars looks pretty good because all you have chasing this other route is like, uh, what is it, $163. That's it. And it's like, okay, maybe I might have made the wrong decision here if you chose the, the penny. But by the time you reach day 31, you're well over $10 million. My point in, in saying that is that we're not looking for massive numbers quickly. We want to go deep. We want to see 
disciples who can make disciples. Right? We're not looking for, we want a, this massive crowd with glory and fame and all that that goes along with that. We want to pour into a few who can pour into a few, who can pour into a few. If you've ever heard the adage, like, you, you can um, catch, catch a fish, but, like, if you're really going to help him, you got to teach him how to fish. So, like, I can catch fish, I can eat, I can give a man a fish, but if I teach him how to fish, he'll, he'll eat for a lifetime. But you know what happens if you teach that man to teach others how to fish? You feed masses of people. Because it doubles. That's what we're talking about in discipleship. We want to have a long view. And as we think about what, when we walk in discipleship with people, we're not looking for quick results, sudden, hey, we're here and then we're done. We're looking for, this is a long path. Helping each other grow and learn Follow the shepherd more faithfully, more clearly to see where is he going. We want to see successive generations of Christ followers, right? We want to see, like if we, if we talked in terms of kids, I want my kids to love Jesus. That matters to me. But I also want to see my kids training their kids who can train their kids who can train their kids to follow and love Jesus. As maybe some of you might be saying right now, Jonathan, that sounds great, but I just don't have time to disciple. I am full up to my ears. I've, I work X number of hours. I've got young kids. You know, and man, I hear you. I, I've been there. I understand how that can be. But I think in that scenario, what I, wanna, I want you to um, think about is to expand your view of discipleship so that, you know, a lot of times when we start thinking about discipleship, we get all these pictures like, oh, it's like when you go and you sit in a coffee shop and you have this discussion and we talk and then we meet every Tuesday and we talk. Sorry, I'm not trying to, I actually do meet with somebody every Tuesday, but, and we do meet in a coffee shop, but it is not, um, but that is not just what discipleship is. Discipleship is life on life. It's something, it's, you can disciple in many different contexts. I, remember, I had a guy who discipled me in college that, that um, what we did, probably our most common activity was we would go to Home Depot together. He'd say, hey, you want to go to Home Depot? I got to go. I got to go get some stuff. And so we would get in the truck, his truck, and we would drive to Home Depot, and we would just have a conversation. We would talk about things. And then I also, I saw him. I, I was ministering alongside him in this context, and it was like, it was like a college ministry. And, and so I would see what he did and see how he cared for people. And I would watch and I would learn. That was discipleship. It didn't even necessarily, I didn't necessarily need to have this close relationship with him. I think we can disciple each other by modeling. We can model for one another. Even if my brother had, had never said anything about how he disciplined, I was watching him and learning from him in that moment. We can be disciples and we can disciple others by just being near and at times taking the moment to counsel or to teach and say, you know, what's going on, man? There are, there are people, plenty of people who are great at asking questions in my life. And, and I, I think that they, um, sometimes they haven't known Jesus near as long as I have, 
But in many respects, they disciple me. They call me closer to Jesus. They show me how to follow the good shepherd better just because they're engaging me and helping me follow him better. You know, maybe uh, others are saying, I'm just not mature enough. And guys, I want to say we all have room to grow. We are not done. I think the story of Paul, I mean, he progressively in life, he saw his sin more clearly and more clearly and more clearly. I mean, he, he seemed to talk about his sin being worse than ever at the end of his life than, um, than when he first met Jesus. I think that that's a reality. The more you grow, you're going to notice the things that you're missing. And I want to exhort you, lead people into what you know, right? Like, and, and I, you know, I can think of, um, you know, if you don't, Know anyone near your age or even significantly younger that you would feel you could lead? There are plenty of scenarios where you can pick up a Bible, a Jesus storybook Bible, and read it to a kid. Don't think about what's, what difference is that making in the next three days. I want you to think about what's, what's that doing 20 years from now. When you're consistent, when you're faithful, when you're walking with that kid year over year, you're growing too. And so you're actually like, you're just a little bit ahead of them. So you're kind of bringing them along in that process year after year after year. And so all of a sudden you get to the end of your life and your kid was way more mature than you were when you started, right? It's a beautiful thing. You can all participate in this and it, and it doesn't have to require all your time. Bring them along in your life. I think the last thing I want to invite you into is that some of you maybe um, you look to disciple people, but I want to ask and, and call you to feast on Jesus. Are you feasting on Jesus? Are you operating in a place where you're operating out of the overflow? Are you receiving Jesus so much that you can't help but overflow? Press into him. The most important thing a sheep can do in leading other sheep to follow the good shepherd is to eat, to drink. Drink deeply of living water. Can you imagine what our church would be like if we all got this? And guys, I'm not, I, I want to be honest. Like, I'm not necessarily saying, hey, I've got this all figured out. I've got plenty of times. I, I have a, just to, I'm just going to be vulnerable here. I mean, I have a, I have a quiet time, like a, a daily time in the morning where I sit down and I read my Bible every day. It's very important to me. I've, I've, I, I learned it from a pretty young age, and it's very consistent for me. And I've gained so much value at it. But I do not, every time I sit down in that chair and open up my Bible, just feel like, oh, I'm in the presence of God. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's just, it's just not that way. It's, it can be really difficult. And I, guys, I recognize that. I know that. And I want us all to be pressing in. But I think that we're, we need to get to that chair. Get the Bible in front of you and say, God, help me. Meet me here. I need you. Show me what, what, I, what you have for me to learn in your word. Move in my heart we got to press into that if we're going to be able to lead others there. I think if our church got this, I think it would be amazing. I think 20 years from now, we would see um, this whole community radically changed. Our lives would be changed. Our families would be changed.
That's what we need to push towards. As we come to the table this morning, we've talked about feasting on Jesus, and I think this is a meal. It's bread and juice or wine, and we're coming to Jesus because Jesus ultimately provided the most important thing for us that we needed. He said that he broke bread, saying this is my body that was broken for you, meaning his body was uh, crushed for our sins. And it said, then he took the cup and he talked about how it's his blood, this blood of the covenant that washed our sins away. And so we come, we meet, we celebrate what Jesus did for us. On some level, we are, yes, it's physical food and drink, but we are kind of feasting on Jesus and what he did for us when we come to the table. So the way that we practice communion here is that we, um, we kind of line up and come down the aisles. We have two people who are going to serve us. Do we know who that is? I don't know. All right, great. Brandon and... Okay, all right. Uh, so we're going um, to come down the middle. They're going to hand you the piece of bread and say this is the body of Christ. And then you can take the cup. And if you are, if you've given your life to Jesus, this meal is for you. Um, if you're not sure, if you're still questioning, wondering, do I want to follow Jesus? Do I want to give him my life? Then I'm going to just encourage you to sit in your chair. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Um, and that when you give your life to him, this meal is open to you too as we celebrate that.